welcome, welcome, welcome. You're... No, that's not my last week tonight. This is the Green Majority. <laughs> the uh, I just really like his intro. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's it does, a, it, on, it does make you feel very welcome. Yeah, it, it, it works better goal. over roarous applause, though. Right. We need to get in. We need a live studio audience to cheer us on. Right. Coming in 2019. <laughs> this is one of the last shows before the Christmas break for the Green Majority. Uh, we have. We generally try and lighten our content towards the holiday season. Um, just out of our. That's our gift to you. Yes. Really. Um, <laughs> is to. Is You're to, welcome, society. Yeah. Is just to pretend that things are more fine than they really are for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so, not really. No, we just. We like to talk. We like to focus on issues that we often put aside uh, because they seem not as quite urgent and, and sort of the news seems to cool down around the holidays. So, there, there's, still, there's still some important news. Don't worry. We're still going to make you sad, <laughs> uh, but we just have some more sort of less specifically depressing uh, content, including what I'm going to be getting to in just a few minutes, which is we have a wonderful uh, film director, uh, Lior Eisen, who's been on the program repeatedly. She's one of our favorite directors. She's so much fun. And she's going to be here to talk to me about food in just a few minutes. Uh, aside from that, though, I am now going to stop talking and give you to Stefan and Dave who are going to tell you important news things. Yes, uh, and unfortunately we are starting depressing, uh, but we promise eventually uh, it might line up. Upward trajectory. Yes. Is it depressing or is it indicative of a wonderful international cooperation burgeoning before uh, our eyes? I guess we'll. I guess only time will tell. Uh, so yeah, so um, as we know, starting in 1995, uh, United Nations member countries have been gathering every year to discuss climate change and how to stop it with the aim of producing legally binding obligations for countries to do their part in preventing worldwide ecosystem collapse. The 24th such conference of parties, or COP24, wraps up today in Katowice, Poland. It is the 14th conference of parties since the landmark Kyoto Protocol came into effect in 2005, which implicated 192 countries in an international agreement to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to a, quote, level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Canada officially withdrew from Kyoto in 2012, but is currently at least paying lip service to the more impressive 2015 Paris Agreement. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated of the conference, quote, to waste this opportunity in Katowice would compromise our last best chance to stop runaway climate change. It would not only be immoral, it would be suicidal. So for the past two weeks, UN countries have been reviewing Paris Agreement strategies and generally trying to convince each other to act in humanity's collective interest in maintaining a habitable planet in the presence of a few elephantine para uh, pariahs, namely the United States of America, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, all of whom officially disrespected the major International Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC Special Report, published early in October, by demanding that the word welcome be removed from the statement uh, regarding the report, saying instead that they wanted to merely note its existence. Since a consensus could not be reached regarding the wording, the text had to be dropped from the proceedings. The report was commissioned by COP21 in 2015 and has concluded that warming of 1 degree Celsius is already having real-world effects and keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is being increasingly seen as the only achievable threshold for avoiding catastrophe, will require unprecedented transitional effort. As the IPCC website states, quote, the report finds that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would require rapid and far-reaching transitions in land, energy, industry, buildings, transport, and cities. Global net human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide would still need to fall by about 45% from 2010 levels by 2030, reaching net zero around 2050. This means that any remaining emissions would need to be balanced by removing CO2 from the air." End quote. Indeed, the United States held a pro-fossil fuel event at the conference for a second year in a row, which was shouted down with the bitter laughter of a large group of activists, and which went largely ignored by the rest of the parties, some of whom saw it as a sideshow for Donald Trump's staffers to prove their loyalty to his administration, rather than a place for serious discussion. The special assistant to Donald Trump for international energy and environmental policy, Wells Griffith, literally ran away from journalist Amy Goodman as she tried to ask him questions regarding the U.S. presence at the event, specifically as maybe to why they would have been there, considering the, uh, Donald Trump and Republican, the ruling Republican Party are uh, outspoken uh, climate deniers. 
the conference has been widely criticized for being sponsored by coal companies in Poland, which gets 80% of its electricity from coal combustion, and which greeted conference goers with a massive display of real coal, replete with coal soap and coal jewelry. Environmental protesters took to the streets around the event in large numbers, accompanied by heavily armed police officers in thick armor, while suspected government agents walked in amongst the protesters, refusing to disclose their identity. Peaceful activism was everywhere met with intense police presence, with rows of riot cops and cops on horses wielding tear gas and massive trucks with water cannons. Some members of civil society groups were also denied entry or deported when trying to attend the conference. So I feel like... my statement that this is going to start depressing uh, was very accurate. Well, you have a, a prescient mind, right? Yes, prescient mind. Um, like the the vision of a of the of this climate change, uh, you know, the largest group of people coming together to work on climate change, being funded uh, and sponsored heavily by coal, and have literally giving away coal jewelry. While I don't know that it was for free. Well, okay, so, oh, that's, <laughs> that does not make it better. <laughs> Um, the idea that you're that coal jewelry is a is a ma- is a part of this of this of this of this conference that is meant to basically be like we cannot use coal anymore, mm. and that the protesters who are sort of showing that are being met by you know by by very heavy police presence in response uh, is relatively an indication that we're not exactly where we need to be. And yet, how many people in Poland and across the world rely uh, for their electricity on coal? Well, yeah, it's, so it's perhaps it, not necessarily a like a a brutal irony, but perhaps a a, a certain kind of irony that the that the poles are are pulling off. It is it, it is certainly either way. Mm. Like the the fact is that if to reduce to reduce emissions by forty five percent in the next eleven years from twenty ten levels will require no more coal. Like we would basically have to start phasing out all of these coal plants relatively immediately <laughs> to see that kind of reduction. Um, and, and so it just, it just strikes me as the kind of, kind of thing that like, you know, every once in a while in our lives, we get these moments that appear to be, uh, sort of little, little pictures uh, that, that they'll use in a museum of how we fail to address climate change. Mm. And I think this is, this is a nice, nice, sh- there's, there's gotta be at least one real good shot of like, of that giant coal in front of this thing. Uh, someone know. bathing in coal with their earrings on. Yes, exactly. Like Cop twenty four, twenty eighteen. Yes, like that. That I think that banner is going to show up at some point in our in our history of failures, uh, in segment that will be probably the first hour and a half of any climate change documentary. That and it'll be make. very nicely done as well. Oh yeah, I think it's 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 it, you know if if to give us such a nice particular vi- visual is, is 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 pleasant. But we have more on the on the conference. We do. Uh, so the conference uh, is meant to finalize the rules for the implementation of country pledges under the Paris Agreement, after which countries will update their nationally determined contributions and develop long-term climate strategies to be submitted by 2020. It will be a tense day of negotiations today, as the conference is about to wrap up with many important issues still undecided, such as how the Paris Agreement will be implemented, how commitments should be measured, how to finance commitments without the United States, and how to make sure that countries ratchet up their commitments in light of the recent IPCC study on 1.5 degrees Celsius. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres tried to rally negotiators to boost their ambition on Wednesday, urging countries to create, quote, predictable and accessible financial flows for the economic transition towards a low emission and climate resilient world. He added, quote, it's very difficult to explain to those suffering from the effects of climate change that we have not managed to find predictable support for the actions that must be taken. UN News reports, quote, the Secretary General reminded his audience that developed countries had a financial obligation to support the efforts of developing countries, as established by the UN Climate Convention, under which the Paris Agreement falls and which was signed in 1992, more than 25 years ago. Guterres argued that we already know how to succeed and that we already have a lot of momentum from all segments of society, saying that, it is la- that what is la- all that is lacking now is the political will to move forward. So far, all parties have agreed to adopt the Solidarity and Just Transition Silesia Declaration, which aims to guarantee that fossil fuel industry workers are not left jobless by the transition to renewable energy, but are trained in the new economy which could create safer and better jobs. 
a growing coalition of countries called the High Ambition Coalition, managed to inject a shot of energy into the messy talks on Wednesday when they held a meeting demanding that the talks succeed in finalizing Paris Agreement rules. After the meeting regarding the United States' anti-environmentalism, the European, the European Union's climate commissioner told CNN, quote, America is in. The federal government is on climate holidays, but in the United States there is action. California, Governor Brown, the mayors of the important cities, the governors, there's action. Civil society is alive in the United States. Yeah, that is a... That's a, what's interesting about that is that is, relatively speaking, actually how the Trudeau government went around about... Uh, Sort of working around this concept of of, of Trump's very anti NAFTA move was was basically being like we can ignore the sort of federal government if we go directly to these other people who are actually taking real action, uh, and so it's interesting that that is also once again happening happening here, which is basically this with this response being like no like sure Trump may go on and say a bunch of terrible things, but like there are many people within the United States who want action and are getting action. Uh, and that's who we can work How with. How does that relate to NAFTA? Uh, well, that's what that's what Trudeau did uh, when renegotiating NAFTA or when during the talks early on was that instead of talking to Trump directly, he was started doing these sort of tours into mm. in all across America to places where uh, trade between Canada and the United States was quite high mm. to sort of have a more ground swell of support for the for the movement rather than sort of just dealing with you know Trump's whims. Mm. Uh, which seems to be an ever-increasing strategy from people uh, dealing with the United States, which if you're the head of the United States government, you might be concerned given that everyone is sort of now working around you. But, you know, that's Donald Trump. Well, speaking of whims, The Intercept reported last week that a Shell oil executive told participants at a side event uh, this year that Shell helped draft a part of the Paris Agreement that dealt with emissions targets, leading some commenters to suggest that politicians were simply doing the bidding of oil companies when they made the commitments non-binding. Well, the non-binding was perhaps the most sort of ridiculous piece of that agreement. Like, they, they needed it to get passed, but the fact that, that anyone would want to leave it, given that it has actually no power and no teeth, is is consistently concerning. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but you got some on McKenna? Please? Yes. So Catherine, uh, Canada's Environment Minister Catherine McKenna addressed the UN. Uh, Catherine McKenna, <laughs> whose liberal colleagues recently spent billions and billions of dollars on a 60-year-old pipeline. She stated, quote, We've each committed to doing our part. We are the last generation to be able to prevent the worst impacts. Starting next year, it, no long it will no longer be free to pollute anywhere in Canada. Putting a price on pollution is the most efficient way to reduce emissions. She added that we are going to double the amount of nature we protect, develop a plastic waste reduction strategy, and continuously tweak our 2050 goals. Stating, quote, in her inimitable uh, bro, hockey bro style, we have, we have adopted a Team Canada type approach, which supports ambitious measures undertaken by cities, businesses and entrepreneurs, indigenous peoples, and young people. She went on to pat Canada on the back for moving past coal, saying that it needs to be done in a way that protects coal workers and coal communities. I, 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 this, before we get thirty years, I, I feel like there's a, a bit here about how consistently one government took get it, phasing out coal seriously, uh, and now all of Canada and everyone else cannot stop talking about this. Like the fact that like the, the, removing coal in in Ontario uh, was such a a success on the front of the reducing Dalton emissions. Team? Yeah, like the the fact that like that that one thing took a, they took a fair amount of flack for it. Uh, it led to probably in some ways part the, some of the parts of them needing to actually uh, to actually reduce their ability to do anything, um, or like sorry, it led to increased prices of of, uh, of energy, mm. uh, which which may have led to their sort of loss of power. But at the same time, basically, Doug Ford can't stop talking about it. The Trudeau government can't stop talking about it. It's one of those things where it's like, we did one thing. Please let us go. <laughs> uh, and it's like, okay, we get it. Uh, but Sarah, you enjoy uh, it? No, just, um, Dave, can I uh, use you as a uh, rhetorical prop for a second? Can sure. you? Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, pull out the quote you just read from her. The last sentence had a number of metrics in it. Can you just reread that? I'm going to interrupt you a couple times. Mm. Uh, well, um, not specifically metrics. Um, what is she saying about like two times the whatever? And oh yeah, she wants of, like, to double yeah, the yeah. amount of nature we protect. Okay. Two times zero is still zero. Next one. <laughs> develop a plastic waste reduction strategy. Ooh, develop a strategy. Okay, and next. Uh, continuously tweak our 2050 goals. Oh, well, if they were based on science, you wouldn't have to continuously tweak them. Anyway, <laughs> was there anything else there? I think there was one at the beginning. You she said, um, well, that uh, 
she, she added the she talked about the carbon um, price that's coming into effect next year, and how it's the most efficient way to reduce uh, emissions. I thought it was interesting. Oh yeah, no, no, sorry, I don't know what it was. It was the line you said there was something in there about uh, 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 it will not no longer be free to pollute in Canada. Where I wanted to interrupt you, and I was trying to be polite and polite, but I just wanted to interrupt you with you. <laughs> you want to bet? Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> Externalizing costs is how the economy works. <laughs> that is capitalism. That is a factually. Uh, f- uh, silly statement. I thought it was very strange how she said we've adopted a Team Canada approach that implied right. that Indigenous activists are on par with corporate. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, it, yeah. It implies things, but it also implies that it, there's like so many little like uh, psychological nudges in there. Like you can <laughs> you can just feel the focus groups in that in that <laughs> message, right? Because what that does is that does two things. Like uh, sort of, I feel like my job these days is just sort of like rhetorical analysis, which I'm fine with. Uh, that's my comfort zone anyway. Um, <laughs> But like what's doing that's doing two things, right? What one it's saying, hey, we're all on the same team. So that's positive, right? Because it's trying to tell it's trying to get because there is sort of a like province v promise uh, province sort of thing going on with some of these policies. So that's trying to be like, hey, hey. so that's good messaging, right? I like that. Like, hey, hey, we're all let's like let's remember we're all on the same team here. But there's sort of an, an another insidious way to take part of that, too. And I don't think they're exclusive. I think they can be both of those things, which is also, hey, activists, if you disagree with this thing, hey, we're doing stuff. And if it's not good enough for you, you're being anti-Canadian. You're not on Team Canada. Right. You're not on the team. Get mm. on the team, Dave. You got to get on the team. <laughs> right. This is a team effort, Dave. Got to get mm. on the team. I have to buy my right? jersey at the Bay this so year. So <laughs> uh, Catherine McKenna, I'm, I'm sure that I would love her if I met her in person. She seems like a wonderful human being. But I have so much contempt for her social media account because she has the least excuses <laughs> for knowing that what she's saying is is bull mm. of any other member of the government and it regularly is bull <laughs> so there we are that's my comment for the day we have we have one more slightly happier twist ending uh not twist ending but at least one positive bright note in, uh, in well i shall wrap up with the very um stark words of 15 year old swedish climate activist greta thunberg This is uh, a girl who made worldwide headlines uh, this year after a few students began joining her every Friday to leave school and strike out front of parliament, uh, a practice she has continued since the beginning of the school year in September. So she gave two addresses to the UN at this conference. Uh, On Wednesday, uh, she gave a startling speech um, at the UN plenary session in which she pointed the finger directly at those in charge. I'm just going to read a few lines that she said. Quote, uh, you only speak of of green eternal economic growth because you were too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving <laughs> forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within the system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg the world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. I think that's the the way to go out on the segment. It's eleven twenty one, so let's uh, let's give a that's half good. second for our uh, for our tech Megan to uh, get set up, uh, and then we will find out what kind of music we'll be yeah. listening to. Uh, Leora Eisen's on deck here. We I can see her outside the studio, so we'll be right back in a minute with a fun interview, and then but we'll round out the show with some sad news at the end, <laughs> just for that nice Oreo of of, of sadness, and then and then yeah. a little bit of happy, and not even happiness, just like relief. Oh, okay, and then sadness. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Megan, what do we got? We'll be right back. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful, very appreciated community radio partners coast to coast and internationally as well as potentially in space, we never know, uh, as well as our wonderful podcast listeners who are checking out our podcast probably via greenmajority.ca, which is also where all the hard work the, the uh, tangible uh, output 
the physical output of Dave's hard work goes, which is all the show notes. Thank you so much to Dave for all of that hard work as well. But we're now going to be speaking to a documentary filmmaker. It's someone we've had on the show several times before, which is why we know we enjoy her company so much. Welcome back to The Green Majority, Leora. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. <laughs> so, Leora, I said you are a producer, writer, and documentary uh, filmmaker. You've done a number of award-winning projects. Many of them have been for the CBC recently uh, through the nature of things. That's usually why we've been speaking to you. And to, that is also why we're speaking to you today, uh, which is about a new piece, which is uh, Food for Thought. <clears throat> and uh, we've done a, a number of food pieces over the last year. There's a lot of really interesting work being done in that area. But this one is much more of a, it's much more of a look, of, I, I, I would put it, uh, having seen the documentary, uh, at sort of, it's like a look at our sort of almost like our cultural values around food. Like it's still very much around the science, but it's sort of about where the science and where we think about food disagrees. And so if you, if you, you're nodding, so I'm hoping that's correct. If starting there, would you explain sort of what the purpose and, and what the general content was? Well, I guess the purpose is to try and sort through a bit of the confusion because I don't know if you've, I mean, you've been a chef, so mm -hmm. you know this. Uh, I've been a chef and someone with extreme dietary restrictions. Right. So I, and I so both, if you've yeah. tried to have people over for dinner, whether it's your family or friends, it's impossible now. Like it used to be simple, but now you get indigestion just thinking about it because somebody's <laughs> on a low-fat diet, somebody's on a low-carb diet, somebody's not eating gluten, somebody's not eating lactose, somebody's cut all out, out all the sugars and fruits, and it's just like – what the heck am I supposed to make? Um, and yet at the same time, we're in this sort of obesogenic environment is the fancy word they call it, which is basically we live in an environment and culture that's kind of designed to make us fat. Uh, and we get so much information uh, from what a UBC dietitian calls Dr. Google, um, meaning <laughs> – Every day you can read a new study about coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you, mm -hmm. coconut oil's the best thing, coconut oil's going to kill you. So you're just left like, what am I supposed to eat? Uh, and so it was just trying to sort through some of that because sometimes too much information means you have no accurate information. Right. And if I can uh, briefly, and I, I apologize, if I can briefly pull out my soapbox for a minute, this is like my tried thing, which is that people often view that, that information about, well, like, you know, last week there was a study saying it caused cancer, now it cures cancer, therefore science is unreliable. No. It's the middle people between you and the scientists that are giving you that impression. That's, <laughs> I think that's part of it. I think another thing is that nutrition science uh, and diet science, if you want to call it, is really hard to do because you have to do it on people. Mm -hmm. not mice. You have to do it for a long time. You have to try and replicate it. Sometimes it's based on people's self-survey, which means people can lie. I mean, there's all kinds of challenges. Sure, anybody can lose weight or get healthier in a very short period of time if they just restrict certain things. Are they still going to be really doing that a year from now? And what are the long-term results? How does our body react to it? It's really hard to do. Uh, the the other thing is a lot of scientists don't agree. So, you know, you can go on Twitter any day and see the fat versus carbs people fighting it out with each other. Uh, and yet they're all from kind of reputable institutions. So am I supposed to believe the Harvard person or the, you know, UCLA person? I don't know. Right. Um, and so it's complicated. The other thing is we've simplified what food is. We think it's either a, a fat, a carb, a protein, some calories, that's it. Food, if you actually look at what food is, it's made up of molecules, right? And there are hundreds of chemical combinations in it. So by sort of grouping it in that way, we're ignoring and simplifying what it actually is. And, and that means uh, we might be preventing ourselves from actually eating nutritious food. You know, if you say all carbs are bad, you're going to maybe not be eating fiber that you need. Well, yeah, super ultra processed carbs are bad. Um, but that's not saying that all carbs are bad for everybody. That's one form of carbs. So you have to be careful. And the other thing is what Michael Pollan said decades ago makes sense. You know, eat mostly plants, not too much. Don't eat the stuff your grandmother didn't eat. Well, why aren't we doing that? I mean, it's like we know this and we're not doing it. And part of that is because we're surrounded by this easy, convenient, fast, cheap, food environment where, you know, I mean, 
as a working mom, I know what it was like. It was like, am I going to get home from work at six and suddenly put on this beautiful fresh food spread for my kids? I'm probably going to pour out the craft dinner, put a piece of broccoli beside it and think I cooked them a nutritious meal. I mean, it's, it's hard. Uh, it's not that hard if you sort of change your way of thinking. And we can talk about mm-hmm. what <clears throat> scientists told me is sort of the way to change your way of thinking. Well, and specifically, um, so specifically on that, one of the things that really jumped out at me uh, first uh, on that point specifically, so was the was the story that's told uh, somewhat early in the documentary, but about, <clears throat> so there was a nutritional, it was it was, it was done sort of uh, very uh, rapid, but essentially, uh, you know, the, the government decided a bunch of food policy. That food policy impacted what was going to be able to be sold to, to consumers. The marketing departments of those companies said, we have to change our products now. And so they took the negative and spun it into a positive, and that's where we got all this stuff that says low fat. And then when you go into the store and you see low fat, you're like, oh, fat must be bad for me because they're marketing that it's, it, they're marketing that it's bad for me. Right. And a whole generation of people came with this idea about fat equals bad. And that's, that's no one's ever thought that. And that's sort of what I was getting at in the beginning was that was a misunderstanding. The science was imprecise, but it was also that it was being way oversimplified to the point of being meaningless. Right. Because first of all, none of us, well, I shouldn't say none, but I mean, I've done the research on this and I still couldn't tell you what really is the difference between a between a polyunsaturated fat and a monosaturated fat. <laughs> so, you know, those terms five get, letters. Right. Those <laughs> bingo. Uh, but those those terms get thrown around. And so what happened was there was some uh, especially one scientist, but a few studies in the states like half a century ago saying fat causes heart disease. Uh, and they were talking specifically about one kind of fats. That sort of kind of gets turned to all fats. And so manufacturers start saying, ooh, we can make money off of this. So they start making low-fat stuff, like dairy was a big one, mm-hmm. you know, low-fat milk, low-fat ice cream, low-fat yogurt, low-fat cheese. But essentially what they're doing is they still want to keep the taste and the texture. And in order to do that, they're throwing in lots of extra sugar. Right. And so that low fat is potentially worse for you. Yeah. The low um, fat became high sugar, arguably. Right. They just took the high and sugar extra off the stuff, label. some yeah. other chemicals, some extra sodium, whatever. Um, but marketers spend literally billions. Uh, marketing food to you. So I, uh, this this I thought was interesting. Um, uh, Jean-Claude Mubarak, who's a University of Montreal nutrition researcher who also works in Brazil, he was talking to me about breakfast cereal, which was one of the biggies that concerns them because Canadian kids get uh, uh, between nine and up uh, get about 60% of their daily calories from food that's not really food. It's the ultra-processed, additives, preservatives, uh, very little actual real food product in it. And so what a breakfast cereal manufacturer will do is you'll you'll go in the supermarket and you'll see a label that says, hi, extra fiber, yeah. right? Fortified with iron. Right, and, and you, you think, know. I mean, I used to think this as a parent, oh, well, that's a better cereal to buy. Well, they haven't said, but hey, by the way, we're still keeping the tons of sugar or adding more. Um, or the way that we got it in there was by adding 17 chemicals or, to keep it fresh. Or, or whatever, like exactly. And so um, we're we're not helpless, but, um, you know, we can't just take all the blame ourselves because it's easy to eat lousy food. Uh, it's sometimes more expensive to eat fresh food. It's a time-consuming thing. But uh, what the experts are saying is, first of all, cooking is not a hobby. It should be a public health priority. And uh, according to Professor Mubarak, only one in five Canadians cooks every day. Like, probably including me, I don't cook every day. Um, And if you're cooking at home and you've had to buy the materials yourself, A, you know what you're eating. B, chances are, uh, yeah, it's going to taste better. You want to buy fresh food. It's not just going to be let's buy all canned crap. Mm. Um, And so that is one of the reasons, you know, Uber Eats is easy, uh, that we're not uh, eating as well as we should be with all the knowledge that we have. 
What is, and I, I don't want to get pulled into a huge sidetrack as a sort of off topic, but I mean, that just has to do with this, this idea of like, it, it's a larger problem we talk about on the show all the time about like people, humans uh, as a species are not good at like delayed feedback. Right. Right. And when you eat bad food, the feedback is over gradual over the course of months or years. So if we're like, well, I need instant gratification. I'm hungry. Uber eats food is here. Now the, the loss is very hard to detect because it's distributed over time and it doesn't happen until much, much later. So we don't get any re- we don't get any corrective action on those behaviors, right? That's part of it. Part of it is also uh, cravings. I mean, mm-hmm. we have a reward center in our brain, right? And uh, it's human nature uh, and biology to crave calories because once upon a time our ancestors, you know, food was scarce, so sweet was something that we were born to like. Uh, and then you very quickly develop a taste for fats because you needed those calories. Well, uh, when food is a swipe away, uh, the problem is nature didn't equip us with something to not want to f- those calories anymore. We still want them, mm. but we don't need them. Um, and so how do you deal with with that, um, you know, and it's it's it is a challenge, but part of it is also the way we evaluate food. You know, it's all about calories, uh, but no fewer people talk about quality. They talk about quantity of calories. Well, you know, if you look at half a donut and an apple, they may have the same number of calories in it, right? They're not equal. Those calories are not created equal. You're getting fiber out of that apple, which makes you fuller, which will delay hunger for later. And you're getting basically empty calories in that donut. It's it's processed crap. It's 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 you know stuff you don't need, um, and no vitamins. So to say, oh well, I cut out 150 calories this week. Well, <laughs> of what? May I, may I ask, did you learn anything Please. specifically about um, that calorie threshold? Because so many people are told like adult males need 2,500 calories uh, to maintain their body weight, 2,000 if they want to lose, 3,000 if they want to gain and so forth. Yeah, I did. Um, uh, it's actually a web extra on the Nature Things website because we didn't have time for it in the doc. But I went with a scientist named Tim Spector who's writing a new book about food. And he's been <coughs> in several of my docs before. He's a great guy in the U.K., Uh, He wanted to learn more about how many calories he needs and what his metabolism is. So we went to a human calorimeter chamber, a metabolism chamber. There are only, (laughs) you know, like a dozen or something of these in the world where you're basically it's like being locked in a submarine room or a seal tight room where you can lie down and do work on your computer and stuff, but no air escapes. Um, And essentially, by measuring his carbon dioxide and oxygen, it's complicated, but they figure out what his metabolism is. And metabolism is is just how we're converting food into energy, (laughs) right? So like, if you have to gas up your car, you have to fuel up, you have to fuel up your body. Uh, To make a long story short, um, he's a lean guy. Uh, meaning his body mass is lean. Uh, So how much body fat he has, not so much how much he weighs, but how much body fat he is. Well, if you think has, so if you think of a car that's an SUV, you're going to need more gas than if you're in a mini. So with uh, less body fat, he needs less gas. So while in the UK, they recommend uh, like 2,500 calories a day for men, like Mm -hmm. they do here, he actually only needed 1500. If wow. he eats 2500 a day, he'd be obese. Um, so these general guidelines make no sense. They're based on averages. So they make sense in a sort of meta way, but they don't make sense necessarily for you as an individual. We all have individual biology. Mm. So why do we try to follow these rules that are for everybody instead of following common sense? Which which was something that that came up at the end of the doc that I was really interesting was they were they didn't they, they were just talking about the idea of it more than it being a thing that's ready to go but this idea of personalized health a a the concept is is new but starting to be accepted that that we can't make generalizations about humans uh, when it comes to these topics but the technology the technology that will go along with it around personalized diet here's what you you know, uh, Lior will require as opposed to a, you know, a female or just a human or whatever, but it's like you specifically based on actual indicators. 
Yeah, and, and that's interesting. I mean, I think we're still far away from it. It's something that Tim Spector and others are looking into. There's also shams out there, so you have to mm-hmm, be really quite mm-hmm. uh, careful about these. You know, we'll personalize your diet for you based on your blood type or your whatever because – Or your chakras. W- right. What what they're doing on, in this huge study in England is, is sort of checking – all kinds of biological in- indicators, including your gut bacteria, which mm-hmm. is which is a key thing. So it's not just your urine and your blood and whatever. Uh, but uh, one day, that's the idea, we could have an app that helps guide us towards, you know what, you do really well on, f- you know, with lots of fruit in your diet, um, whereas this person should up the vegetables, but, you know, not eat as many grapes. I mean, I'm, I'm just theorizing, mm-hmm. um, you know, but there are some golden rules. I'm not trying to make it like there aren't, which is stop eating ultra processed food. And by ultra processed, it doesn't mean processed because you know, frozen vegetables are better than no vegetables at all. That's processed. Pouring salt when you're boiling your egg in your boiling water, processing just means transforming, basically. Mm. Or in, the, in salt's case, it's really just like concentrating. Right, right. And But ultra-processed is that stuff, you know, if you're in the supermarket and, and actually look on what's in instant noodles or – you know, some frozen pizzas and, of course, chips, cookies, sweetened juices, all of that kind of stuff. You know, chances are you can't pronounce 90% of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be a hint. So a, a quick thing somebody told me, I've never actually done it, but I'm sure you could do it, which is to go to a big box store that has both like a grocery section and like just a like houseware section and grab a random stuffed animal or something and then go to the food section and try and find how many things on both labels are the same. <laughs> That's scary. You actually can find, you can usually find at least one. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'd so, want to go there. We're actually out of time, but I really wanted to ask you this question. So I'm going to, I'm going to steal from Stefan and Dave here. Just one more, one more minute here, which was, there was one more specific thing I wanted to talk to you about, which was this study about halfway through with snacking. Tell us about how we think about what it is that we're putting in our body affects what it, our, how our body actually treats it. This was the, my favorite part. It was wild. Okay, so there's, to, to keep it quick, there's a, a British study. They took 80 women and gave them pasta. Half were told it was a snack. Half were told it was a meal. So the ones told a snack, some of them ate it standing up, straight out of the carton with a plastic fork. As we do at work. Right, mm-hmm. how, you, how most of us eat at right. work. Uh, the other half who were told a meal, some of them ate it sitting on a real, you know, at a table with a real plate. Metal fork they mentioned Met, specifically. Yep, yep, real uh, silverware, whatever. Um, so the ones who thought it was a snack ate more. Okay, they were... That's one thing. But there, here's where it gets tricky. After that, they kind of sneakily told them, oh, now we want you to do a taste test uh, and did not tie it to snack or meal. They just said, you know, sample this candy and these pretzels. It's like tell M&Ms. Me, and yeah. Right. It, tell me what you think. Um, and the ones who were told the pasta was a snack ate way more of the candy and pretzels and junk food. And how the scientists explained it is – your mind is not processing when you eat a snack that you've actually eaten. Hmm. You're not getting the signals, oh, I've had my meal, therefore I'm full. So it's like you didn't count it even if you ate the same amount of pasta. So the the big takeaway for me there is that because there's obviously, uh, you know, some – interpolation of data happening by the researchers there. I think it's totally fair interpolate, but you know, it's, that's not, that's not sort of a rock solid result. What I, that's sort of an interpretation of the data. What I think we can say is a rock solid result is that like so many other things, our mental state and how we think about something that we think of as purely biological is incredibly impacted by our mental state, personality, thoughts, and how we think about it. Huge, huge impact, uh, as usual, more than we think. Definitely foods just as much about psychology as anything else. I can't wait till we get to see you again, Laura. Pleasure okay. as always to have Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank you so much. So we're going to go back to our second and final music break now. We're going to pull Stefan back into the studio. Uh, Dave is still here. And who knows? Maybe maybe Laura wants to sit in the chair for a few minutes. We'll, we'll see what she says during the break. But for now, I will give you to Megan. are back. You're listening to The Green Majority in the final section. I was able to convince Leora to stick around, so she may or may not say anything, but she's still here. Uh, And with that, I give you, however, back to Stefan. 
Yeah, so we are we're carrying on this uh, this 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 back to slightly more depressing news. This uh, is this, this first thing. Actually, this is not depressing. This is not depressing. Okay, thing. this is good news. All right, go, Dave. So uh, forgive me, I have nothing prepared. I'm just going to try to pull some facts out here. Uh, so the um, a Quebec group called Environnement Jeunesse uh, has filed a groundbreaking lawsuit. Uh, bringing climate action to Canadian courts against the federal government, similar to the 21 uh, youth plaintiffs in the United States, uh, which has brought uh, action against the federal government for um, not dealing with climate change, so putting their own citizens at risk. Um, Yes, the um, environment group is um, initiating the lawsuit on behalf of 3.5 million Quebecers uh, at or below age 35. So it's it's, it's a children's lawsuit. Uh, just like the other, first in Canada of its kind. Um, they want, uh, they're arguing that um, uh, climate change is violating their rights, as with the United States one. Um, and they are arguing that every person has the uh, right to live in a uh, healthful environment uh, that preserves biodiversity. Yeah. Anything. Well, the it was interesting about this is that, of course, there also was the 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 move in 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 the, in the Netherlands uh, in 2015, where they actually won. Uh, the, in 2015, the, the the Dutch group, the Urenda Foundation, uh, actually won one of these. Uh, these Which these was lawsuits. recently upheld this year. Yeah. Uh, and and they basically a district court judge ruled that they had to reduce emissions by 25 percent from 1990 levels. Uh, which really is that that first number. Whenever you hear, as a quick aside, whenever you hear about these targets, the most important number is when they start. <laughs> Every other number is 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 in relation to when they start. Two thousand seven letter levels, two thousand five levels. Have I told you about levels. my plan to lower emission levels to twenty twenty levels by twenty eighteen? Wow. <laughs> now that see, well, 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 that's the thing. It's like you, you want to plan. You, you could you could reduce emissions to just nineteen hundred levels and be fine, right? Like, like here's the thing: you, you do zero percent. Below 1900 levels is a is a good goal, right. um, despite the fact. But yeah, but and, and and what's interesting about this is not just it's not just I've often wondered what happens when they win, because uh, how do you make it sort of causes this immediate crisis between the courts sort of forcing policy, right? Uh, but in the Netherlands, uh, it has basically forced them to remain. That means has forced them the government to actually cancel all remaining coal fire plant power, coal fired power plants by 2020. So they got real action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's and so there's 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 truly a value to this kind of movement. Uh, any other notes on that? Are we this, uh, well? This um, specific motion uh, states, quote, uh, as as evidence um, states, uh, quote, the gross negligence of the Canadian government for more than twenty five years in the matter of climate change. Yeah. So they're they're arguing criminal negligence here. Yeah. That, well, that's where I would have gone. Hey, I mean, negligence is the thing. You you know better, and you're doing it anyway. And there will be someone who is going to have quantifiable and demonstrable harm from that. I mean, that fits that to a T. Right. Well, and also, it's just that people aren't used to considering governments and major corporations to be like actually liable, like not like le- not not legally, but like in reality, like like a real world. Nobody mm. actually expects it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's also interesting is the fact that when you when you look at this. It's not like the government can pretend that they didn't know, given that like they consistently had these sort of reports being like, we know about it and we'll do something eventually, uh, you know, has been basically the message since, you know, what, since the early 2000s when they started when they started negotiating the or actually the 1990s, really, when they started negotiating the Kyoto Accord. Um, it's funny that to call back to the first story uh, about how it was like we left the Kyoto in 2012. That is a bit of a misnomer because we weren't doing anything for the seven years beforehand. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like we were working hard in Kyoto for a while and then suddenly decided to leave. Um, we basically signed it, said, yeah, sure did nothing about it and then years later left it as it seemed like it was going to be usurped by the Paris Agreement. Um, Well, what I think is kind of interesting is governments change, right? right? And so, you know, whether it's Harper and Trudeau or, you know, what's happened in the U.S. And and so uh, court action in some ways makes sense because, you know, the leading or one of the leading climate scientists in the U.S., Catherine Hayhoe, who is a Canadian and I'm a huge fan of of hers, yeah, she's great. right? She, you know, co-authors the report for the very government that denies climate change exists. And and that's what, you know, they're trying to fight in the U.S. Um, and so when governments change, if, if you have constitutional or human rights arguments, 
does that offer some protection, uh, especially in a system where you have provincial and federal or state and federal, does that offer some protection for citizens? Well, also just from like a like understanding how the world. I, I don't mean that in that sort of general patronizing sense, but like like the the mechanics of how things work. A lot of people don't understand that, right? So, I just a brief anecdote that I think is highly relevant it was a, two years ago. I walked into a restaurant, and uh, I walked out of the restaurant, and then I had an email in my. In, I wasn't even there. I was just visiting someone who was in the restaurant to get something from them. So I was not even a customer, and I walked out and immediately had an email from that company saying, "Hey, thank, we we'd love to know how you liked our restaurant today." Because they sent they 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 pull, I didn't even sign in. I literally just walked into their space and they pulled my email address off of my phone by simply entering their Wi-Fi range. And so I contacted uh, the electronic commission and said, "This doesn't seem legal. Like you can't, that's surveillance. Like there's so there there has to be 50 million privacy laws that are being violated here." And what the, the, the here's the important part. <laughs> this is why I'm telling you this anecdote. What they said was, "You're probably right, but we cannot do anything unless you file a complaint." There has to be a person who's harmed for us to do anything. Just breaking the law is not enough. Someone has to be harmed. Mm. And you have to be that. And then we can bring that complaint on your behalf. But the government cannot bring it on its own. And that is something that is very shocking to most people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how that rule interacts with I, – like I don't know – how that interacts with the law. I don't know if that can be carried as a general rule, but it's a concept that people need to understand where a lot of the time, we're so many times, or or about these the, the folks that Dave was just mentioning in the court case, or about all these other things, sometimes you'd be like, well, that wouldn't work because obviously you can't do that. Well, maybe sometimes it hasn't been done is because that's actually the reason. Like there, there needs to be a, I'm harmed, and then the all the people who really wanted to do something can then go, great, all right, I'll be your lawyer, here's your, re we'll get you these notes. But like, it's the government often can't just do stuff, right? So there has to, even if so, whether or not the government wants to do it or doesn't want to do it, there still has to be a person who's saying, I'm the person who's harmed or we are the people who are harmed. I demand, you know, retribution or I demand satisfaction or I, I demand arbitration. Uh, but we have to, There, has, someone has to stand up and say, I'm harmed for these wheels to actually start moving sometimes. Mm. So I want to, I do want to get to this other story because I think it's actually quite important. And since we're going to two other, uh, well, two pre-records the next couple of weeks, uh, I do want to get quickly to the the, the, the Vancouver BC plant or BC plan really. So yes, um, all so all this information is from Star Metro Vancouver from an article written by Ainsley Crookshank and David P. Ball. Uh, so the BC government has unleashed its plans for a sweeping uh, climate plan. Uh, which is in support uh, from business groups as well as climate advocates. Um, but it's not clear how they will um, close the 6 million ton shortfall in their greenhouse gas uh, commitments. Um, they plan to reduce uh, emissions by 18.9 million tons over the next 12 years, uh, largely through increasing the use of electricity in industry and transportation and uh, promoting low carbon fuels. Um, they also plan to slash industry emissions by 8.4 million tons, nearly half the total uh, cuts planned, uh, through ele aggressive electric electrification, uh, new hydro transmission lines, and uh, $240 million a year technology fund. Uh, another third of the cuts are coming from greener transportation, um, boosting renewable energy supply, uh, increasing their um, carbon emissions uh, price, so already increasing the price on their already implemented carbon tax, which has been uh, in, um, which has been going on for tw ten years already. Uh, retrofitting units. Um, however, there there are critics who say this is simply just the liberals' old plan uh, without any details, because the details are actually supposed to be worked out uh, in the budget, which is after the next uh, provincial election. They've already got. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. They got another. Uh, uh, like they've they've basically set themselves ahead four years and then so it's because like they just got elected last year. There's a, I guess they they must have a plan. Like what's interesting about this is that it, they are increasing the, the this they will have the best carbon price in Canada. Uh, Fifty dollars a ton is two twenty dollars more per ton than uh, than what than what the Liberal government is trying to trying to get into into Canada, uh, and and they're doing it. This is a relatively similar plan to to what. 
to what was carried out in Ontario, right? The idea of, of le- and, and it's really what, what people have said. You, you have to electrify everything and clean up your energy grid. Like those are the first two steps of this almost no matter what. No, the, in part because they are the easiest two parts. They're the two parts that require people to sort of change their lives less, right? Uh, it, all you're really expected to do here is like, okay, just keep doing exactly what you're doing, but use electric versions instead of like diesel versions. Um, but but the, the, it should be it should be important to note here that the it like that the one of the major things about the problem behind that that piece is what we're currently still seeing. If you look at the trends of of EV vehicles uh, or, or vehicle purchases more generally. Basically, what's happening is that people have stopped buying small cars. Uh, and so, like, if you're the kind of person who would normally have previously bought a small car, you're either not buying n- new cars or you are shifting to not owning a car at all. And what's actually happening is you see this – it basically looks like two trend lines, one going down, one going up, is that most people who are now buying new vehicles, <coughs> I think it's up to almost 70% are trucks. Like, it's basically all we're doing is selling trucks now. Uh, and there's not any, uh, and there's not any real uh, in push right now to make those actually. Uh, it's very hard to, because they're bigger and need power. It's more difficult to make them electric and have the same range. And so we're, and so just creating a world where a bunch of new EVs are sold for that set of people won't do anything unless we find a way to deal with the fact that these truck purchasing is is, is increasing quite steadily. And Conveniently, uh, Stefan, we have Matthew Klippenstein, our our local uh, Canadian vehicle market expert, coming on the program uh, sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, well, we can ask him about this. About this we trend. will. We yeah. will, in fact. Um, and, and so that's and that is sort of why the. This plan really needs, I think, to 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 move towards a a, a push. It's, it's great that they're sort of doing they're doing some stuff that is like you know the retrofitting of uh, of, of fifty one thousand provincially owned housing units is is one of those things which is actually very actionable from the government. Um, and, and using their own purchasing power to create that market is huge. You know, you see organizations here like building up uh, in Ontario, which is basically managed to produce so much water, but entirely basically because the government uses purchasing power to hire them uh, and, and, and to, to sort of have those kickback uses. And so it's a lot of good things. It's, it's a lot more to be said about this, obviously. And I think there's a perhaps in the new year, we can come back to this whole conversation uh, about all the different pieces of it. Uh, yeah, they're saying it's still going to fall 25% short of BC's 2030 reduction targets uh, to kind of emissions by 40% relative to 2007. Yes, yeah. But now 40% by 20, 2007 is an ambitious target. Uh, now 2007 levels again. And as an Ontarian, it's easy to criticize. Yeah. But when you see what's going on in Ontario, <laughs> it's like... You know, mm-hmm. yeah. if it's still an improvement, it's mm-hmm. still an improvement. I, I never liked that expression, race to the bottom, because it always seemed like like a bit hyperbolic. But we really are having a race to the bottom in Ontario right now. Yeah, uh, Stefan, you're correct. We are running out of time. Go yeah, ahead. so I was going to say the last word is just that, yes, exactly. At the very least, uh, BC has a plan and is moving forward in a way that we <laughs> definitely are not. So good on you, BC. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful green week. And we may see you next year. Yeah, we don't know what's happening, but there will be content coming out shortly, and, and uh, we're not going anywhere. So don't, uh, don't stress. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Take care, folks. (laughs)